don't know what happened to my <clears throat> microphone. Uh, Genesis 10 is where we'll start <clears throat> this morning. I don't know how many of you follow the uh, <clears throat> Facebook page, um, but uh, Dale Jarvis, who was former member, passed away by the end of last week. So that would be Michelle Hutton's dad. <clears throat> They had, the, the Jarvises and the Huttons had joined the church this, earlier in the summer that we came in, 1984. And so, and then while you're getting turned to Genesis 10, I was, I was thinking this, I thought Wednesday, a week ago Wednesday, um, we dealt First Corinthians six on uh, and the part of the passage of judging the world and judging angels, and I, I thought about that um, as we we navigated through the Wednesday's weather. Um, you know, I I had talked to a couple. I, I usually do in situations like this. Talk to a couple of the pastors and to see what they were thinking. And you know, it was it was a it was a done deal and a shoe in. The weather was terrible and. We were going to cancel church, and everybody knew that. And then it turned into kind of this non-event, <clears throat> and uh, so then it became a question of now what do we do? And uh, so, you know, so <clears throat> anyway, we decided to go ahead and cancel anyway. And I thought this: I'm looking forward to the day when judging the world doesn't take on all of the uncertainty that these kind of judgments have. Uh, <clears throat> So, all right, let's go ahead and pray and we'll uh, dive in this morning. Genesis chapter 10. Father, we rejoice in your goodness and we rejoice in your power and we rejoice in your wisdom that you know all things and can do all things and all that you do is right all the time that you do it. And I pray that you would help us as we think about um, the very earliest days of human history to appreciate the wise way in which you have worked in the world for your own purposes. Bless our time, please, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so Genesis chapter 10, and we're not going to read all of Genesis uh, chapter 10 this morning. Genesis 10 and 11, and we will spend most of our time in Genesis 11. Uh, Genesis 10 and 11 bring us to the end of the first really major division within the book of Genesis. Um, if you want to divide the book into large segments, Genesis 1 through 11 are the history of the human race, and Genesis 12 through 50 is the history of the Hebrew race. And so out of the masses of humanity, God directs all of his attention to one man and his descendants, and we will come to that. But as we divide the book into smaller sections, and of course for us, we have chapters and verses, but the, the writer, and we assume that the human writer is, of course, Moses, um, he used the expression, these are the generations, or this is the generation. Um, and so we had, at the end of the creation account, Genesis 2-4, these are the generations of the heaven and the earth. This is the story 
in what became of the heaven and the earth. And then in Genesis 5.1, we had this is the generation of Adam and Adam and his family. And then in Genesis 6.9, we have these are the generations of Noah. And then in 10.1, and you have your Bible open in Genesis 10. Now, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and unto them were sons born after the flood. And so this then is our chapter division. And there will be others, but again, they will, they will increasingly deal with more and more material before we find those divisions. So here's where we are in Genesis chapter 10. right? Because these are the generations, has the idea of, this is the story of, this is the account of, this is what you need to know about that. So God created men and women to serve him and to serve him by expanding his influence around the world. Um, but here's what's happened. Uh, men and women in their sinfulness have degenerated to such a state that God destroys them with the flood and virtually wipes out the entirety of the human race with the exception of Noah and his three sons and their wives. And then following that, the generation of the sons of Noah fall into such a state that God scatters them. So what we have here in to us, it's, it's reversed. It's obviously not reversed in the mind of God. In Genesis chapter 10, we have the world scattered. And in Genesis chapter 11, we have an explanation for how it came to be that way. So that, right, it's not really being, it's not written backwards, but to us, it might be read somewhat backwards. We might think of it. We might not consciously think that Genesis chapter 10 is explaining to us, although we get to it first, what happened as a result of Genesis chapter 11. Um, Look down, if you would, and again, I'm not going to read all of it. I'll make reference to some. But if you look at Genesis chapter 10 and verse number 25, and, and here's one of the reasons I would argue that we know that Genesis 10 is is written to describe what happened after Genesis 11. Genesis chapter 10 and verse number 25. Unto Eber, excuse me, were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days was the earth divided, and his brother's name was Jotan. Now, Genesis 10.25, folks, is not describing geography. Sometimes people will take it to read geography. And so that in Genesis 10.25, you have the formation of the continents. There's one landmass, and now we have continents, and in his day was the earth divided. That is not what it's talking about. If you will look, and for me it's literally across the page in my Bible... If you will look at Genesis chapter 11 and verse number 8. So the Lord, and I'm going to translate the word the way that it is found in Genesis 10.25. So the Lord divided them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth and they left off to build a city. 
So what you have in Genesis 10 is kind of this ongoing explanation, right? When did, what caused it? When did it happen? Well, it was in those days that it happened, and this is the subsequent result. Um, That word is most often translated in your Bible with the word scattered, because that's what it refers to. So again, going back to Genesis 10.25, okay, for in his days was the earth scattered. And again, I would argue that we're not being given a geography lesson, but that we are being given a lesson that fits within the whole. In other words, we ask the question, or I ask the question, what are Genesis 10 and 11 about? Okay. <clears throat> They're not about land mass. They're not about mountains and rivers and continents and valleys. They're about people. God created people, and he created people for a purpose. And people are not living up to the purpose. And no matter how many people they are, and no matter what he does for them, they don't live up to the purpose. This is where we're being led in the story. When we get to the end of Genesis 9, and we went through all of that with Noah and Ham and what happened, What happened is this, the people of the earth are literally divided into two classifications. They are blessed or they are cursed. One of the two, they are blessed or they are cursed. That's the end of Genesis chapter number 9. Genesis 10 then continues on in a pattern found in other genealogies and We're not going to to bore down into all the academic details, but let me just just make these observations to you, right? Just want to deal with a little bit of the structure of Genesis 10 and 11. In Genesis 4, 17 through 24, you have the genealogy of Cain. And the genealogy of Cain ends with the story of three sons. This is the way the story ends. Jabal, Jubal, and Tubal-Cain. So we get to the end of Cain, and we have the story of his three sons. The genealogy that takes us from Adam to Noah, Genesis 4.25 through 5.32, ends also with the story of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The genealogy that takes us from Noah to Terah, which we will get to next week, Genesis 10.32 through 11.26, also ends with Three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. So we keep finding this repetition of three sons mentioned in the genealogy. Now again, right? there's a lot, if you care, there's a lot of academic debate about whether the genealogy lists are complete or incomplete, whether they list everybody or only somebody. I think that they list everybody They certainly list everybody that gives us all the necessary information God wants us to have. Going back to Genesis chapter 10, this lengthy list, right, is going to follow that same threefold format because it begins with Genesis chapter 10 and verse number 1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And so Genesis chapter 10 is going to walk us through 
these to the descendants of these men. But not all of the names in Genesis 10 are individuals. Some of them constitute what we today would call people groups. For instance, excuse me, in Genesis chapter 10 and verse number 11, you have an individual, a man by the name of Ashur, who builds the city of Nineveh. And of course, there's an entire group of people named after him. Right? These are the Assyrians, the Asherites, and Nineveh is their capital. If you look at Genesis chapter 10, verse number 14, Pathrusim and Casluhim, out of whom came Philistim, and Kaphtarim and Canaan begat Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusite, and the Amorite, and the Gergesite, and the Hivite, and the Archite, and the Sinite, and the Arvidite, and the Zemurite, and the Hamathite. Those are tribes. Those are not individuals. Of course, that I-T-E ending signifies entire large groups of people, not simply individuals. So we have a rather comprehensive list. Genesis chapter 10, verses 2 through 5, tell us about the sons of Japheth. Here's all you need to going to need to know about the sons of Japheth. And of course, then you could take your concordance and trace some of those names throughout the Bible. Genesis chapter 10, verses 6 through 20, tell us about Ham and his descendants, who they are, where they lived. Right? This is information that is valuable to us to this day. With all of these people, we have some idea of who's who by where they settled and where they tend to be located on the planet. <clears throat> and then Genesis 10, verses 21 through 31, tell us about Shem and the descendants of Shem. And of course, Shem is going to be the one who is going to give us the godly seed that's going to come ultimately through his line. And then each of these three sections ends with a brief summary. So that in Genesis 10.5, you have the summary statement. By these were the isles of the Gentiles divided in their lands, everyone after his tongue, their families, and their nations. Which, by the way, Genesis 10.5 is another clue that what we're reading in Genesis 10, right, actually comes after the events of Genesis 11. Because in Genesis 11, there's only one language. And in Genesis 10.5, there are many languages. So we know that they're given to us in reverse order. Here's what happened. How did it get that way? God says, I'll tell you that in a minute. Genesis 10, verse number 20. These are the sons of Ham after their families after their tongues, in their countries, and in their nations. So you have, right, Japheth, summary statement, these are, these are the sons of Japheth, the Gentiles, the Goy, or technically the Goyim, the plural of the people. And these are the sons of Ham, after their families, their tongues, in their countries, in their nations. And then verse 31, these are the sons of Shem, after their families, after their tongues, in their lands, after their nations. So these three sons are going to be scattered across the earth geographically, living in different places, having different languages, living, developing, right, ultimately their own customs and their own cultures. 
And then Genesis 10.32 is the summary statement of it all. These are the families of the sons of Noah after their generations in their nations. And by these were the nations divided or scattered in the earth after the flood. So when we get to Genesis chapter 10 and verse number 32, we have a pretty well populated earth. And we have people scattered everywhere. And again, folks, if you work your way through that list of people, where they are, you have some idea in what parts of the world they settled. And so they really do end up covering, to a large extent, the face of the earth. Now, at what point in time, right, the nations are, the continents are separated and formed, the scripture doesn't really inform us. That's not what the scripture is concerned with. The question is, how did we get to Genesis chapter 10? And part of the answer, folks, is that understanding that everything that you read in Genesis chapter 10 was not what men wanted. Men did not want that. To a large extent, unregenerated men still do not want that. There is still a large movement and a large belief that the only thing that is going to solve so many of man's problems is if we were all one. And we know, of course, from the book of Revelation that there's going to come a push to make us all one. And wouldn't it be better if we were just all one? And we just all had one language and we had one leader, and we used one money, and then we would just all get along. So we really want to understand, right? Because this is, I mean, I think this is the way that the story is written. We're to read chapter 10 and go, well, that's interesting. How did that happen? Or maybe we're just reading along in the assumption that that's what happened, and then Genesis 11 comes along to tell us that it happened not through men, but through the Lord. That what men wanted, the men that God created, wanted something completely different than what the Lord wanted. Right? So let's just remind ourselves. Let's go back. You can turn to it if you want. Genesis 1, 27 and 28. Just listen to me. I will read it to you. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish, which just means fill. Fill the earth. Fill the earth. Subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. That's what God wanted. God wanted Adam and Eve to have children, godly children, who would grow up and get married and marry godly children, who would then have more godly children, and they would spread across the face of the earth and populate the earth. That's what they wanted. That is not what they were doing. But that is what God wanted them to do. What they were doing is what is described in Genesis 11. So let's look at what men wanted. 
The whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east. And you've got to remember now, folks, that you're reading chronologically prior to Genesis 10. So that there's a sense in which you could go back to the end of Genesis 9 and start reading Genesis 11.1 chronologically. If you're reading a Bible, if you have a Bible reading calendar that's chronological in nature, I hope it has you read Genesis 11 or Genesis um, Genesis 11 before you read Genesis 10. The whole earth was of one language, one speech. It came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, go to, let us make brick, burned them throughly. And they had brick for stone and slime had they for mortar. And they said, go to, let us build a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven and let us make us a name lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. So what do we have, folks? We have, a pop, we have a world population, however large it is, that has staked its claim that it is in opposition to the will of the Lord. We don't want to be scattered. What did God say? Go scatter. We don't want to be scattered. This is what men are doing. <clears throat> what we have in Genesis 11.1, 1, folks, is, right, we don't know what the numbers are, but it's still a small enough unit that it can travel as one. I don't think that we should think of this as a mass migration of 30 million people. And again, I want to I just tread very carefully here, and I'm, I'm being serious. Right? Because we, we don't have really too much latitude to read things into the scripture that aren't there. But I also think we would be very foolish not to think a little bit about the way people who survived the flood might be thinking. What are these people thinking? There are eight of them. And it is their task to repopulate the earth. And I don't think that it's a stretch for them to think that it's a good idea for all of us to stick together. And that is what they intend to do. The unifying factor, folks, in Genesis chapter 11 is their language. What binds them together is their ability to speak to each other, to understand each other. They have one language and one speech. In other words, not only do they all have, I mean, a little bit like, right? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to make a mountain out of a molehill here, but, right? Americans and Englishmen and Australians and New Zealanders, to name a few, all have the same language. We all speak English. But in the strict sense of the word, we don't all have the same speech. And 
in 2019, my wife and I went to the UK. We went as part of a tour group. Totally unbeknownst to me, of the 40 couples that were on the tour group, 37 of them were either Australian or New Zealanders. And so we spent three weeks with people, then we all spoke the same language. But it was very obvious very quickly that we didn't all have the same speech. That when we, when we talk, right, we just do things differently. And we use different words to communicate different ideas. Again, not drastic. I'm not trying to make a mountain out of a molehill. I'm just saying that if you and I talk about a jumper, and then you go to England and talk about a jumper, you're not talking about the same thing. Because in England, a jumper is a sweater. And for us, a jumper is not a sweater. And that's all I'm getting at is, right, it's not simply being repetitive in Genesis 11.1. They all are using the same language, and they're all using it to describe the same thing. So that when they talk to each other, they don't need to explain anything to each other. This is a huge part of culture, folks. One of the ways that we define culture simply is that culture is when you don't have to explain something to each other. Right? Then, then that becomes part of the culture. We don't need to explain to anybody what we're doing. We know what we're doing. We're all Americans. We're all Midwesterners. We're all Nebraskans. And so we just kind of understand by default certain things that do not need to be explained. That makes up part of our culture. That's what we have here. We have a unified group of people, and their unity is their language. Some argue, make the argument <clears throat> that Genesis 11.1 1, is being told with a large measure of sarcasm. Couldn't prove that. But if you look at Genesis 11.1, the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. Genesis 11.9, therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. So that Moses is taking a bit of a dim view of the significance of this unified population. He's being told some sarcasm. Right? Because you get enough people together and they tend to think that they're really something. And now we're really, now we're really going to get something done. And I want to make sure that we understand, folks, that in nothing that is said in the passage ever should we ever conclude that God is somehow intimidated by what's happening or threatened by what is happening? So back to Genesis 11. <clears throat> right? <clears throat> so they reach this place, this land of Shinar, which is probably mod- what we would today call the Fertile Crescent or Mesopotamia. Right? They dwelt there. And they said one to another, go to, let us make brick, burn them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and slime had they for mortar. So we have, right? And then they said, verse number four, go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. Let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad, a face of the whole earth. So we have one people in one place who are determined to make access to the heavens for themselves and to make for themselves a name, to establish themselves in perpetuity. So this is what men want. This is their will. This is their ambition and their desire. 
Genesis 11, 5 through 9, tell us about God's response. What did God do in the face of what men wanted? And this, of course, is God's response after he had already destroyed the entire human race with the exception of eight people. So verse number five, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, behold, the people is one and they have all one language and this they begin to do. Now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. So God came down to take a look. And if you remember, folks, mentioned this early in our study in the book of Genesis, that through these episodes, right, in the early parts of the book of Genesis, the narrator always tells us the same thing. He always tells us about the sin of the people, and he always tells us about God coming down to investigate personally to see what's going on. There is, whether or not there is any irony in 11.1, there is tremendous irony in verse number five. Men are building up to the heavens. And no matter how high men build up to the heavens, God always has to come down to look at us. We, men never appro- come close to approaching God. Verse number six is not written in fear. Okay. Verse number six is not written in fear. The Lord said, Behold, the people is one, they have all one language, this they begin to do, nothing will be restrained from them. Right? We don't want to understand that, folks, as God going, if this continues, I will not be able to manage them. He is making a declaration that what will happen if all the people are one is that there will be no restraint to their wickedness. Genesis 6, 5, God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination, which is not the same word as found in Genesis 11, but it is a synonym of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Just like, folks, right? Just like. Let me pick on teenage boys. You get two or three teenage boys together You get two teenage boys together, you don't necessarily get double the amount of trouble you'd have with teenage one teenage boy. You may get triple the amount because they play off of each other. I'm trying to, it's not inappropriate, I'm just trying to think if it's appropriate to the story. I, I knew of a young man because I had several young men that I knew that were there at the time who were in the dormitory at a Christian college, 
And so all the guys, because right, this is the kind of this is the kind of lunacy that only teenage boys can come up with. Right? They took the cover off of a light switch and exposed the switch as much as they could. And then they all took turns licking their fingers and running by and slapping the light switch. And you go, that's stupid. Is that not a good description of most teenage boys? And I say that, by the way, I say that really generously, right? If God is interested in men and you don't end up with men if you don't do stuff like that along the way. That's just the way it works in a sinful world. Right? I doubt very seriously that all the young ladies sat around and somebody said, hey, I got a great idea. Let's put our hands on a live wire and see how it feels. But all the guys did, right? And then guys being what guys are, nobody wants to be the coward who doesn't do it. So everybody does it. And all that to say this, folks, when God looks at the situation, all God is saying is this. If they just keep multiplying with the same language and the same speech and everybody's together, all that's going to happen is that sin is going to get out of control. God is not saying they're going to multiply to the place that they're going to pose a real threat to me and they're going to depose me and then what's going to happen. That is not what he is saying. So God comes down and confounds the language and at this point in time, folks, right, at this point in time, now you can go backwards to Genesis chapter 10 and read Genesis 10, 8, 9, and 10. Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty hunter. Let me give you the translation because I think this better captures it to our ears. He became a mighty hunter in the Lord's face. In the Lord's face. Nimrod took his place as the leader of the anti-God party. He's the leader of the opposition. He is the in God's face head. And the beginning of his kingdom, verse number 10, was Babel. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. So he's right here in Genesis 11.9. Because, folks, no matter how unified they are with their language and how unified they are with their culture, there's going to be leadership. Somebody's going to be calling the shots. Somebody's going to be organizing. Somebody's going to be issuing the orders. Somebody's going to be managing. And the head honcho is Nimrod. And so the Lord comes down and he scatters them by confusing their language. They no longer understand each other. And they begin then to spread apart. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, confusion, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. So there's the story, right? Then again, as always, and we'll work through this fairly quickly, what is the significance of this passage? What does it have to do with anything? So let me suggest to you several things. Number one, it speaks to the sinful intention of men. 
What do men natively want? They want to live away from the influence of God. That's what they natively want. By human nature, we want to live away from the Lord. Cain moved away from the presence of the Lord. Men want to live away from the presence of the Lord. They want to be one. They want to be unified for the sake of their own safety and significance. But they don't want to live really under God's order. Secondly, this passage marks something that will be significant through the Bible. It marks the beginning of organized resistance against God. Nimrod is in God's face, and this is the beginning of Babel. And literally, folks, if you were to look, if you were to get out a concordance and look at the Hebrew language, which you could do easily, Virtually every other place in the Bible that the word is translated, except for Genesis 11, it is translated Babylon. Because that's what we're talking about, Babylon. Genesis 11 and Nimrod is the beginning of Babylon. And Babylon then comes to signify organized resistance against the Lord Throughout the scriptures. Revelation 14.8. You can turn to the Revelation if you want. Revelation 14.8. There followed another angel saying Babylon is fallen, is fallen. That great city because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. God has had a long war with Babylon, and Babylon has taken, we talked about this when we did Revelation not terribly long, Babylon has had many forms in the course of history. It has had many faces, but there's always been a continuity to it. It has always been the system that is organized against the Lord. Revelation 16, 19, the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Revelation 17.5, and upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Revelation 18 Verse number two, he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. And then down to verse 10, when God destroyed it, standing far off for the fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour is thy judgment come. Or Revelation 18.21, mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone, cast it into the sea, saying, thus with violence shall that great city Babylon be thrown down and shall be found no more at all. God is going to crush this organized resistance. This is the end. So what is the significance? It is what men want. They want heaven on their terms. They want earth on their terms. They want nothing to do with God. 
and they are organized in this. There is a cohesiveness, not a mutual love for each other, but a mutual love for their own agenda. Thirdly, this story demonstrates the wisdom of God. He has managed to perpetuate the population of the earth and to restrain its capacity for sin. Think about this, folks. As evil as our world is today, it is not as evil as it would be if we were all one. Now, that's not the consensus of the world, right? If you said that in a United Nations meeting, you would probably get shouted down. That one of the benefits of all those nations in the United Nations is that sin is not as bad as it could be. But that's that's the storyline of Genesis 11, 1 through 9. Is that it would be a lot worse than it already is. And then finally, folks, this passage sets the stage for the revelation of the grace and mercy and salvation of God. And, of course, what is about to come, right, in Genesis 11 is Abraham, the father of faith. And in the faith of Abraham, the salvation that he has and the beginning of the spread of the gospel throughout the world, right? God wanted people to live throughout the world and he wants the gospel to go throughout the world. And when that ministry is given, when Jesus gives the Great Commission, it is immediately followed by Pentecost, which really has, folks, as its primary point at the primary point of Pentecost is that God is beginning the unraveling of the curse of Babel. The languages are no longer confounded. God speaks, everybody hears. One voice, everybody hears. The God who created the confusion can undo the confusion. That's the point. All right, I'm going to stop there this morning. Just about on time for a change.